You're listening to the Tree of Life podcast, where we desire to be a bridge between the two covenantal peoples, physical Israel and spiritual Israel, by inspiring the non-Jewish part of Messiah's body to reconnect with its Jewish roots through biblical teaching and worshipful demonstrations, and to work towards greater understanding and reconciliation between Messiah's body and traditional Judaism. And now, here's Rabbi Joel Lieberman. Months and we have finally finished the gospel according to Luke. It took me 21 months. And it was more preaching than teaching, although there was a lot of teaching in there, but it was really, I was looking for more of an inspirational message as I give here on Shabbat mornings. But I felt the Lord asked me to re uh, come back around to some foundational teaching. So some of you might, you know, start, might, you might get some, some sleep during the next four sessions. It may not be life giving to you, but I believe not only am I speaking to you, but I'm speaking to my Christian brothers who might, and sisters who might be hearing this uh, throughout the app and the podcast and so on. And so I'm doing something that I've never done before in probably about seven years. I'm going through a different translation for the next four sessions. It will not be uh, a Messianic Jewish translation. It will be one more that the Christian community can put confidence in. It will be more of a, of a word-for-word translation than more of a thought-for-thought like the TLV is and the CJB is. And so... We're going to ask you, after the service, uh, you can help us to spread the word about this series, The Law of Lift. <laughs> We're going to have this selfie frame, and we've got kind of a, a seating chart of an LL airplane outside, and you can get your photo with this and tag yourself and share it on Instagram and Facebook and wherever that you're on social media. And so this is going to be a foundational series. Again, it might be dry for some of you, but then again, it might clear up a lot of misconceptions for a number of you. In that regard, yes. With each individual's own phone, yes. We're not taking your photos and sending it to you. You will have your own phone to take those photos. Thank you for that clarification. With that being said, the law of lift, understanding the relationship between the law and the new covenant. Actually, if I can get some ushers back as well, I've got some handouts for you in that. uh, Thank you, Craig. Each week I'm going to have some handouts for you, kind of a basic outline, because you may have to listen to this message two or three times to kind of get where I'm coming from here. And I'm a fellow student like you in these regards. Frankly, over the past 15 years, I've witnessed a lot of confusion amongst Yeshua followers regarding the relationship of the law to the Abrahamic covenant and the relationship of the law to the new covenant. What is its place? So we want to take up that question in much detail during this teaching series. I do not claim to have perfect understanding of these issues. I want to put that disclaimer up front. Nor is this an exhaustive study on this matter. This four-session Shabbat mini-course simply represents my sincere and best efforts to cover crucial aspects that I believe will help us navigate properly our ships correctly through these waters. And it may not even be till the final session where you will properly understand the title that I've chosen for this set of teachings. And so the series is actually going to be more from a pastoral perspective than a theological perspective, although we will be looking at and discussing a lot of scriptural passages. But my goal is to lead you into what I believe is a proper understanding of the relationship of some of the key biblical covenants, theocratic covenants, and especially the place of the law in Messianic Judaism. So let's begin. I'll have an outline at this point. You can follow where we're headed here. Let's quickly look at a brief overview of three key covenants with the nation of Israel. Let's begin in 2000 BCE with the Abrahamic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant. You recall that this covenant with Abraham is the first of the theocratic covenants, in other words, pertaining to the rule of God. It is an unconditional covenant depending solely upon God who obligates himself in grace, indicated by his unconditional declaration in the word, I will, to bring to pass the promised blessings. 
The Abrahamic covenant is the basis for the other theocratic covenants and provides for blessings in several areas. Number one, national blessings. You remember in Genesis, I will make you a great nation, he said to Abraham. Personal blessings. I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. And finally, number three, there are some universal blessings. And all in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so this covenant was first given in broad outline. You see the scriptures there. It was later confirmed to Abraham in greater detail. It starts out, of course, with Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, where we see that blessing, that land grant, and that multiplicity of descendants that I've mentioned. It moves further into chapter 15, where we find the ratification of this covenant by God as he passed between sacrificial animals. Genesis 17 records that God renewed this covenant with Abram, changing Abram's name, and gave the sign of the covenant, which was circumcision. And finally, we see the confirmation of this covenant at the Akedah, at the binding of Isaac in Genesis chapter 22. My friends, this covenant is the foundation, it is the root, and it is the ground of Jewish identity. Fast forward 430 years later, about 1450 or so BCE, we find the Sinai covenant, uh, which is discussed, of course, through the rest of Torah, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Uh, This covenant with Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses, our teacher, is the second of these theocratic covenants, and it is conditional. It's introduced by that formula in the word, conditional formula. If you will obey my voice, then you shall be a special segulah, a special treasure. This covenant was given to the nation of Israel so that those who believed God's promises given to Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant would know how they should conduct themselves. And so the Mosaic Covenant is, in its entirety, governs, again, several areas of their lives. Number one, the the mitzvot, right? The commandments govern their personal lives as they're related to God. The chukim, the judgments, govern their social lives, particularly as as they related to one another. And the mishpatim, the ordinances, govern their religious lives so that the people would know how to approach God on the terms that he dictates. The Mosaic Covenant in no way, you get nothing out of this, in no way replaced or set aside the Abrahamic Covenant. And so this second covenant further defines Jewish identity and that had already been established earlier by the Abrahamic. Fast forward again another 1,300 plus years, or excuse me, another six, 700 years, and we come to another promised covenant from God given through the prophet Jeremiah, and that is the Brit Chadashah, the new covenant, right? Go with me to that in Jeremiah chapter 31. It'll be on the screen as well for you. Very important passage that was promised here of the new covenant, verse 31 of chapter 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a Brit Chadashah, a new covenant, with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers, the Sinai covenant, in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my my Torah, my teaching, my law in their minds and write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. And so we see several provisions in these verses made in this new covenant. Number one, we see regeneration. God will put his law in their inward parts. He would write it on their hearts, in their hearts. Number two, we see a national restoration in this prophecy. Adonai will be their God and the nation will be his people. We see a personal ministry coming forth of Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit here, that they will all be taught individually by God in verse 34. And we actually find here full justification. Their sins will be forgiven and be completely removed. So this new covenant was inaugurated as we just have finished the Gospel of Luke. We saw that at Messiah's last Passover Seder with the matzah and wine elements. 
You recall from our study in chapter 22 of Luke, uh, where in verse 40, I probably have the wrong thing here, but that's okay, because you know what I'm talking about with the matzah and the wine. This is the new covenant, my blood shed for you on behalf of many. And it was ratified by, through the death and the resurrection of Yeshua and the infilling of the Holy Spirit on Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks, 50 days later. This new covenant completes Jewish identity and actually then establishes a new identity in Messiah. We are Jews and we are Messianic. Now, I purposely left out a number of different covenants, like the Davidic covenant, because they if this particular series don't have a bearing on the immediate subject at hand. But let's talk about now, now that we have that foundation of the three theocratic covenants, let's talk about the relationship between some of them, the Abrahamic covenant and the Sinai covenant. Again, I don't have, you would agree with me that we all don't have perfect understanding, but I think we would agree on one thing, that the Shaliach, the emissary, the apostle Shaul or Paul, had perfect understanding by the Spirit concerning this relationship. And guess what? He elucidates it for us in the Word of God. Go with me in the New Covenant to Galatians chapter 3. And we're going to pick it up in verse 15, Rabbi Saul's writing, Brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say unto seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed who is Messiah. And so in the scriptures, again, a covenant is made unilaterally by a superior party, either Adonai, God, or maybe a conquering king, with the inferior party, the conquered people or God's people, who only submit to the terms announced. And so in this case, Adonai made promises to Abraham in a covenant. Our modern English, uh, unfortunately, views a covenant differently. It views it as a contract drawn between equals and alterable by either party. But an oath, once sworn, cannot be altered by anyone, not even by the one who swore it. My friends, Adonai, God, swore an oath when he made the promise to Abraham. Genesis chapter 22, verse 16 says it like this. And, because, and said, by myself, God is saying, I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing, and have not withheld your son, your only son, Yitzhak, Isaac. Blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gates of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And so the term seed, back in Galatians 3, you can turn back over there, the, the term seed, zerah in Hebrew, is used in the singular as a collective noun to refer to all of a person's descendants. And so Shaul, Paul here, uses the singular form of the word which allows all of God's promises to reach their fulfillment, to reach their culmination in the Messiah, who is Abraham's seed. How many of you are still with me? The rest of you are fighting Klingons in the spirit or something. But through this seed, capital S, will all the nations of the earth be blessed. And likewise, the Messiah is Adonai's son, his seed as well. And so included in this community of the Messiah, like we have here today, are both Jews and non-Jews. Now let's read on, Galatians 3, verse 17, where we left off. In this I say, he writes, that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before, by God in Messiah, that it should make the promise of no effect. In other words, what is Paul saying? He's saying the law didn't come in 430 years later after the promise, the covenant with Abraham, in order to modify it, in order to abolish it, in order to change it, in order to put stipulations on it. 
The promise, the inheritance stands on its own, Paul's writing here. And so for a Gentile, by the way, that is not a derogatory term. There's only two people in scriptures, Jews and Gentiles, meaning of the nations. It's not derogatory. So for a Gentile, they may have to figure out now how to receive the promise, but the promise is not changed and doesn't become something that all of a sudden you now need the law in order to obtain justification. And so Paul here is distinguishing the characteristic element of Torah that was received on Mount Sinai at the time of Moses. It's specifically legal portions of it from the elements which existed previously, the promise to Abraham. He's contrasting the Torah's commandments with its promises. Therefore, even if the legal part of the Torah had required obedience without trust, it could not nullify an oath sworn earlier by Adonai, which says that Gentiles will be blessed through Abraham without having to become Jews. That is super critical to us in the Messianic Jewish movement. It's super critical to the Christian community as well. Now let's go on. Look at verse 18. For if the inheritance is of the law... It is no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. So Paul here, he, what's he doing? He's setting up this dichotomy here, folks. Law did not come at the same time as the promise. It came 430 years later, right? But it didn't change the promise at all. You see, if you ignore the law, you still have the promise. You still have Abraham. You still have the adoption. Paul says that if you go through the law to obtain the inheritance, salvation, you circumvent the promise. And without the promise, you cannot be justified as children of God. So Paul says, you guys have to choose. There's a dichotomy being drawn here. Law versus promise. It's not law versus grace. Hello? It's not New Covenant versus Old Covenant. It's not Christian versus Jewish. It's not any of these things that you've read about many times or heard preached many times. It's law versus promise. You see, if the inheritance comes from the legal part of the Torah, then it's no longer coming from an unconditional promise. But the fact is that Adonai gave it not to Moses but earlier to Abraham through an unconditional promise, again, which affects Gentiles as well as Jews, and not through a legal, legal code intended for Jews only, which is although it's relevant to Gentiles too. And at the same time, Gentile followers of Yeshua, hear my heart, do not have a covenantal responsibility to keep those aspects of Torah that were given by God to serve as boundary markers of identity for Jews, a.k.a. circumcision. My friends, the Sinai covenant does not grant us justification. But it's obviously, we know, still valid in so many ways. What Paul is saying here is that because we broke the Sinai covenant, listen, we could not keep, nobody can keep the 613 meets vote in the scriptures, in the, in the Sinai Covenant, but it doesn't negate the Abrahamic Covenant, which was enacted 430 years earlier. That is a tremendous point for us as Messianic Jews because Paul is saying that the law, hear my heart, the law isn't as important. That's a shocker. Paul is saying that it's a parenthesis in our history. For 430 years, we didn't even have the law. If it was so super critical, why didn't God give the law to Abraham at the very beginning? Oh, I'm getting you upset. I can, feel, I can feel you looking at me in that tone of voice. I know. But why is this important to us in the Messianic Jewish movement? Because today, oftentimes within extensive swaths of Christianity, we hear that everything in the Tanakh is negated because we're not under the law anymore. And yet there is a covenant, another covenant that was enforced 430 years before the Sinai covenant that was the Abrahamic covenant. And what happened in that covenant? This is the covenant, the Abrahamic, in which we as Jewish people and the Jewish nation were formed. 
if we were formed as a nation then and cannot possibly, that can't possibly be annulled by the fact that we failed to keep the Sinai covenant. What does that mean for us as Messianic Jews today? It means that the Abrahamic covenant is still in existence. Adonai has a covenant relationship with the Jewish people, and also he has a covenant with every single individual Jewish person. That means you and I are in a covenant with our unsaved Jewish brothers and sisters. If they thought about that, that's interesting. It is incumbent upon us to continue in that Abrahamic covenant. There are two types of covenants. Let me repeat again. One is a covenant between us and God that is agreed upon. That's conditional. The Sinai covenant was between two parties. We agreed to that covenant at Mount Sinai. But there's another kind of covenant that is unconditional, where God is saying, I'm going to do it, and that's it. That was the Abrahamic covenant. And therefore, if the Abrahamic covenant is still active today, then that means that God wants the Jewish people to continue to live up to their heritage. And not only to live up to their heritage, but to transmit it to their kids. That is critical. Lador Vador, right? One generation to the next. Why does it seem so difficult to transfer, transmit our faith to our children? How many of you have kids? Have kids. My wife and I have a twenty, almost twenty-five. It'll be twenty-five next week. We got to send them something. Okay. Um, and a twenty-two-year-old. I read the Word of God. And I don't see it in the Word being very difficult to transmit our faith to our children. It should be the norm. And the prodigal son and the prodigal daughter should be the exception in the word. Being raised in a Messianic Jewish home, I have to say that it comes down to that I was taught in the home. How many of you believe responsibility begins there and ends there? In the home. The word of God does not say to raise up your children in a Messianic environment or a congregation, but it says to train up your child. How do we train up our child? You teach them what is right to do. Well, what if they don't want to do it, Rabbi Joel? Too bad. That's why we're called to train. How many of you know that's not easy, is it? We got some battle veterans in here that know what I'm talking about. We are not told, hear my heart, we are not told to reason with our children. Now, as they grow older, that changes, of course, in a different way. But when it comes to younger kids, don't reason with them and put them on an equal basis with yourself. My friends, your children at that age are not your buddies. They're your children. The Torah says in the Viahavta to teach your children the word of God until they believe it, until they know it. And that is not said from a heart that wants to beat anybody up here. Believe me. We can't go back in time. My wife and I can't go back in time to make corrections. But it must begin with us living the word every day and every night. If we're not doing that, how do we expect that to be transmitted? But it can be. And God, I believe, has given us this incumbency and this calling. So let's summarize these verses. If you've already lost, you're lost very clearly. Summary, verse 16, the seed, capital S, promised to Abraham, is the Messiah. Verse 17, the law came 430 years after the promise. It does not annul the covenant made earlier with Abraham. The promise of the Messianic seed stood on its own for 430 years. And then when the law was added, these two covenants are going in parallel, as it were, for the next 1,500 years, running side by side. And finally, in verse 18, the summary of it is Israel's true inheritance. Who's that? What's that? Yeshua comes by the promise made to Abraham and not the Sinai Covenant, which begs the question, why did God give the law then if we already had the promise? Good question. Paul answers it, verse 19, Galatians 3. What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come, the capital S, seed should come, to whom the promise was made. Why was the legal part of the, of the Torah even needed, again, if the promise is independent of it? Well, a key purpose of the commandments, the legal part of the Torah, 
was to make us, us as Jews and Gentiles aware of our sin. The legal part of the Torah is good. It shows us where we missed the mark. It shows us why we're actually under a curse. And it also shows us why we need then to be justified and become children of God and why we need to come to him. In some cases, the guilt that we feel at times causes us, some of us anyway, to despair of even earning God's praise by our own works so that we come to God in all humility to do what? To make the shuvah, to repent, seek his forgiveness, and then trust him. And so from the time of Moses until the coming of Yeshua, the Messiah, the legal part of the Torah had this consciousness-raising role. The Torah still exists, it's still in force, and for those who have not yet come to trust in Yeshua, it still serves that function. But for those of us who do trust in Yeshua and are faithful to Yeshua, the Torah need no longer serve in that particular capacity, and Paul's going to explain why. But let's look at one example that should cause us Cause that to hit home for us a little bit this morning. Devarim, Deuteronomy 13. And you'll see it in a second here. Verse 6. If your brother, the son of your mother, your son or your daughter, the wife of your bosom or your friend, who is as your own soul, secretly entices you, saying, let us go and serve other gods, which you have not known, neither you nor your fathers, of the gods of the people which are all around you, near to you and far off from you, from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth, you shall not consent to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him or conceal him, but you shall surely kill him. Your hand shall be first put against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. And you shall whoo, stone him with stones until he dies, because he sought to entice you away from the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. So all Israel shall hear and fear and not again do such wickedness as this among you. How many of you can say with me today, Baruch Hashem, that we don't have to stone our children or our siblings or our spouse to death when they rebel? Darcy is like, darn. Can't do that when Joel... There's nothing wrong with the law. This revealing of God's standard, the Torah, is perfect. But it can't bring us salvation because we can't keep it perfectly. The Torah was given to lead us to God. It is a guide. It is a tutor. It is a guardian. And Paul is saying contextually, again, it's contextually in this letter to the Galatians, that it is helpful, uh, that it is to help navigate these Gentile believers. Remember, they're just coming out of the pagan world. He's, the Torah is a guide to them coming out of the pagan world as new believers to get them to the place where they come to God, which is what these Gentile believers had just done. Back to the text in Galatians. And it was appointed through angels... The Sinai Covenant was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now, a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. And so these verses, now listen, I could have got a much easier translation to give you the thoughts, but I wanted to make it accurate. Again, more of a word for word to parse it a little bit. These verses, I believe, refute the often heard Jewish objection to the New Covenant's teaching that Jewish people don't need Yeshua. We hear this all the time because they don't need a mediator between themselves and God. Rabbi Joel, we don't need this Yeshua. We go direct. This verse reminds us, though, that Moses served as a mediator. And so did the Kohanim, the priests. So did the prophets. A mediator necessarily mediates between two parties. In this case, Moses mediated between Adonai and the Israelites, right? Because they were afraid, you remember, for, to have God speak to them direct. Paul's point seems to be here that as we compare the Abrahamic covenant, unconditional covenant, to the Sinai covenant, conditional, because the promises of the Abrahamic covenant are unconditional and came directly from God without a mediator, these promises to Abraham are superior to the legal portions of Torah which came from God with a mediator. Is the law, verse 21, then against the promises of God? 
Chas v'shalom, certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. If we say that, Paul's saying, if we say that the law and promise are opposites, does that mean that we just throw the Torah out? God forbid, he says. Paul's saying, we're not supposed to throw out the legal part of the Torah, but he's saying, guys, gals, it doesn't justify you. It will sanctify you, right? It will show you how to live as a righteous person, but it won't justify you. But the scriptures, verse 22, the scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Messiah Yeshua might be given to those who believe. The Torah shows what sin is and how living away from God is living in a place that you and I just don't want to be. But you see, the law in and of itself had no, had no power in it. It doesn't have the power to turn you into people who trust God and are faithful to God. But when Yeshua died for our sins and Adonai placed his ruach, his spirit within us, by the fact that we accepted that atonement, we now have God's power. We have his koach for what? To overcome problems? We have his spirit to receive healing? To receive deliverance? Etc. Let's go on. Look at verse 23. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Who, remember, it's contextually, who's Paul talking to in this letter? Gentiles. But Paul is saying that we Jews knew that legalistic observance was going to get us no place. We had thousands of years of history to learn that. But these Gentiles in Galatia, had, they just had come into the kingdom of God. They're new believers. They're being told by certain people that legalistic observance was the way in to the kingdom. And Paul's saying, it's not the way in. In order for, remember, contextually, in order for a Gentile at that time, and the scriptures were written here, for them to become a child of God, they had to go through a conversion. They had to go through a proselytization process. They had to enslaved themselves to a system that was not a part of who they were. And they had to take it on. It was an enslavement in a sense. That was the communal norm. Paul's talking about Gentiles here who had converted to Judaism. The only way in was subjection to that system, Paul says, until a certain time would come. The time to come was to be a time of faith. The time to come was to be a time of trusting. That time was when the incarnation of the Messiah, Yeshua, into flesh. And in his life and in his ministry and in his death and in his resurrection. Before the Messiah came, that conversion process was the only way into becoming the people of God for Gentiles, right? They had to be enslaved to the law because they were not born Jewish. Why was that process given to them? To keep them guarded as Gentiles to be righteous Gentiles until the time that this promise that Abraham was given would be revealed in the earth. When was that? Again, when the Messiah Yeshua would come. But the usual interpretation of this verse, even in my Bible here, you know, the, the, the tab over at the headings is believers are free from the law. The usual interpretation of this verse is that Paul's saying that Jews were imprisoned by the Sinai covenant until Yeshua came. But now Jewish believers are free from it. That's the usual interpretation you'll hear in congregations preached from this passage. So, you know, Rabbi Joel, go on ahead and go, it's no problem, go eat a ham sandwich. That's, that's what you hear. That the Jewish believers were imprisoned by the Sinai Covenant. But the legal part of the Torah is not temporary. It's not abrogated by the Messiah's coming, right? Yeshua said, I've not come to what? Abolish the law and the prophets. I've come not to abolish, but to what? But to fulfill, but to complete. To bring proper application to. Now, specific elements of the Torah have been transformed. The sacrificial system, right? I don't see any of you sacrifice, except Jeff maybe sacrificing animals out of his property. But he doesn't have the temple out there anyway in Dolzura, so it's not kosher. But it's good food. It's good eating, right? Okay, yeah, kosher animals. All right. There's a temple out of Jeff's house. Oh, no. That's been transformed. It's been 
the relationship of both Jews to Gentiles in the united body of the Messiah has now been clarified, right? Ephesians 2, etc. Nevertheless, most of the ordinances of Torah and the statutes of Torah remain the same, even if some priorities have been rearranged among some of them. So what has been brought to an end by Yeshua's death and by his resurrection is not the legal part of the Torah, but the need for people to try to earn God's favor through a legalistic obedience to it. Listen, this is not to embarrass anybody, and I'm not going to tell you who sent it to me yesterday, but I got a text message, and somebody was super concerned here that they had been invited by their friend to eat lunch after the service today at a restaurant, and should they do that according to Torah? She says, I know you're busy with everything in Ukraine and so on. Just give me a yay or a nay. I said, absolutely yay. I said, the commandment is, all of your regular vocation, that don't do. Is eating at a restaurant your regular vocation? Hopefully it's not. <laughs> you see how twisted we can get in this? And that's, that's not an, a comment out of nowhere. That, that's a lot of people have over 15 years. This is what I deal with. This is what people are talking about. So this is a foundational study in these things. The legalistic obedience kept, by, kept our Jewish people actually imprisoned under guard until Yeshua came. There were two aspects of that guardianship. There was protection and there was harshness. My friends, prison is not a pleasant place, but it does provide some measure of protection from the outside world and from certain kinds of temptations. Let's go on, verse 24. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Messiah that we might by, be justified by faith, the Greek word here translated guardian or tutor is pedagogos, a slave who conducted a boy to school and from school. And therefore, it's not surprising that the King James Version renders this phrase, the law was our schoolmaster. You see, actually, the pedagogos would have been a harsh disciplinarian, hired actually to do the job with a boy required to obey him. And so because, unfortunately, the Torah was eventually perverted into legalism, it served in this role of being a harsh disciplinarian for the Jewish people. Yes, it provided some protection, but generally it made our people ever aware of their sins. And I believe the heart of God desired that we hopefully would turn from all that legalistic rule following and be declared forensically righteous on the basis of our trusting and faithfulness to Yeshua. Gentiles became proselytes to Judaism back then, before Messiah. But that was all pointing to the fact that the Messiah would one day come and bring them the ability to faithfully come to Adonai through the Messiah without becoming proselytes. Verse 25. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. It is a true statement that we don't have to put ourselves legalistically under the law. But it doesn't mean that the law here, this verse, is a guardian or tutor and needs to be thrown out. Which is the way it's usually interpreted. But in fact, it means that these Gentile believers, again, didn't need this existing system of proselytization through circumcision. That's not needed anymore. That's not needed anymore. That's not needed anymore. That's not needed anymore. And so from all of you people that are calling me and texting me and emailing me and messaging me about where do you know I'm loyal because I'm 45 years old and I've come to an understanding that, it, that I need to be more Jewish and I need to go through circumcision. Listen, I appreciate the courage at 45 years old wanting to do that. But you've missed the point of identity in Messiah. Yeah, you think it's isolated. It's funny. This is a massive question for people today. All right, let's sum up these series of verses. Paul's been comparing, again, the Abrahamic covenant with the Sinai covenant. And his conclusion is that the Sinai covenant was not given to impart eternal life. That was the purpose of the covenant with Abraham. We receive eternal life by faith. Paul states that there are two things that the Sinai covenant can do for those who attempt to receive eternal life from it, from God by obeying it. First, it can point out our sinfulness, verse 22. And secondly, the Sinai covenant can then point them to the one who removes sin. 
the Messiah, verse 23 and 24 and 25. Those verses represent only one of the many purposes for the Sinai covenant. It has specific functions, again, for the righteous, the saved, and the unrighteous, the unsaved. And as far as the followers of Yeshua are concerned, my friends, all Scripture is God-breathed and is valuable for what? Teaching the truth, convicting of sin, correcting faults, and training in right living. All Scripture includes the Sinai covenant. And as far as the unrighteous are concerned, the non-believers, the Sinai covenant can serve to point out their sinfulness that's its job, and to point them to their Messiah. You see, when a person comes to the Messiah and receives him by trusting by faith, there's no longer a need for the Sinai covenant to serve as a tutor or a schoolmaster to lead them to the Messiah. That's already happened, and at that point, it begins to function in a different way, in a totally different capacity. It describes now for us the lifestyle of the redeemed. Summary of these verses. You've fallen asleep, wake up for these. Verse 19, as a surgical instrument in the hand of the Holy Spirit, the law reveals the holiness of Adonai, right? It is light. The law establishes Adonai's standard of righteousness. The law objectively defines sin and brings it into the light. You've got some Romans passages there, chapters 3 and 5. Don't have time to get into it. Number 4, the law awakens our conscience and convicts us. Romans 7 Several verses there on your outline. It serves many other purposes, and I've given you probably about 20 other purposes on your outline to serve as the foundational revelation of God, to remind us of His love, grace, and power. And you can read all of those on there. And let's summarize these verses again. Verse 23 and 24, the summary is, Until the promised Messiah comes, the law is a guard that keeps us within certain boundaries. The law is a tutor that impels us. It drives us to the Messiah. And however, verse 25, Paul concludes, after the Messiah, the promised Messiah comes, the tutor has served its purpose, and we are no longer legally bound to the tutor. Hear me again clearly. I'm not saying the law has no value. I'm going to get into that deeply before this series is over. It's just that we're not legally bound to the tutor since the living rabbi has come. The promise made to Abraham has come. April, if you come up, a couple of pastoral applications for you and I today. These set of messages are going to focus on pastoral issues, but there are some theological underpinnings which we've talked about. A couple of concluding thoughts I feel need to be said. The first is that the issue, the idea that one becomes more Jewish or less Jewish based on adherence to the Sinai covenant or Torah observance is the catchphrase out there, is completely erroneous. Jewish people, in fact, generally, Jewish people are not religious. And in this country, only 10% of Jewish people identify as Orthodox and therefore Torah observant, quote-unquote. Reformed Jews, conservative Jews, for the most part, don't even believe that the Tanakh even is the Word of God, let alone a calling to observe anything contained in it. And those streams of Judaism, my friends, represent 50% of our people. The absurdity of Torah observance as a marker of Judaism, as a marker of Jewishness, is even greater highlighted today in the modern state of Israel. Founded by non-religious Jews who wanted nothing to do with the Orthodox from the outset. Today, Israel is populated by at least 50% of non-religious Secular Jews, particularly on the coastland from Haifa down to Tel Aviv. Secular Israeli Jews who constitute the backbone of Israel are Jewish by identity per the law of return. But most of them are not observant. The fact is the vast majority of Jews in the Jewish state don't see traditional Judaism nor the observance of Torah commands as the mark of Jewishness. 
Only the small minority of Haredim, of ultra-Orthodox in Israel, see it that way. And moreover, Paul writes it like this. For no human, Romans 3.20, on the basis of Torah observance, will be set right in his sight. For through the Torah comes awareness of sin. That's my first application. Secondly, and then we're going to close. I'm going to bring up a special guest as well. Over the past 15 years, I've noticed and received a lot of inquiries, as I mentioned, as to what it means to be a follower of Yeshua, to be Torah observant. And during that same period of time, many of us have noticed a trend. We've seen countless posts on the interweb where people, mostly non-Jews, claim to be Torah observant. And from my observation, it seems that to be that their definition of Torah observant is that Well, I try to keep whatever commandments I can or that I'm guided to by the Spirit to keep whatever commandments are necessary. Or worse, some, so many of these guys follow and gals, they attempt to follow Torah as if, and I don't mean to be disrespectful, as if they're looking at a Chinese menu in the restaurant. I want to take some things from column A, take some things from column B. But leave some things on the menu untouched. Of course, not all the instructions in Torah can be followed. Again, there's no temple to complete the instructions. In many of these commandments are filled anyway, fulfilled through the Messiah's sacrifice. I try not to judge these matters as I know I can also be judged. But in my opinion, the term Torah observant for Yeshua followers is ill-defined And even a misnomer. Here's why. My friends, Torah observance is not, hear me, is not the main call of our lives unless that's defined very broadly as in loving the Lord our God with all of our heart and our soul and our strength and loving our neighbors ourselves, right? Because generally, however, many, when people say Torah observant, they don't mean it in that way, that broad way. No, they mean that they do things written in the book of Moses that most believers aren't doing. They wear tzitzit. They keep kosher. They don't spend money on the Sabbath, etc. And when defined that way, there's nothing wrong, in my opinion, with being Torah observant. And to some extent, I do these things as well. If it is grounded in love and led by the Spirit. The problem I have is that many who claim to be observant see Torah observance as the pinnacle of their faith and the pinnacle of the life of Yeshua. They say things to me like, well, Yeshua was a Torah teacher. Yeshua came to bring us back to Torah. Yeshua's life can be summed up by reading the Torah. Therefore, if I do Torah, I'm following Yeshua. But I think that person has put the cart before the horse. Becoming more Torah observant through faith in Yeshua may be a secondary result. But it's not the primary aim of our faith. Torah observance cannot be the way in which we define Yeshua's life either. It doesn't capture what his life practically was about, nor can it capture the main thrust of our lives. Why? Yeshua's healings, his teachings, his death on the execution stake, his resurrection from the dead, the pouring out of the Spirit are not aspects of his following Torah. Nowhere does the Torah say, thou shalt die on an execution stake. I'm not saying these things are unrelated to Torah. We know that his death was prefigured by these animal sacrifices. We see that, etc. But he didn't go to the tree of sacrifice. He didn't heal the sick because he was obeying Torah. The relationship of Yeshua and Torah is that Torah leads to Yeshua. And Yeshua leads to a new life in the spirit that cannot be fully defined by the Torah. My friends, Yeshua leading us to Torah, if that's the main way that you're going to draw those arrows, is backwards. We're supposed to be healing people. We're supposed to be praying without ceasing. We're supposed to be living self-sacrificial lives. We're supposed to be spreading the gospel. We're supposed to be living in community with Jews and Gentiles together as the temple of God, the one new man, as it were. None of this is Torah observance, and all of that is fundamental to our lives as believers. 
Torah observance, as it is so commonly understood, cannot capture Yeshua's life, and therefore it cannot and should not, and it will not capture our lives. The Torah points to Yeshua. That's the way the arrows go. So yes, Torah, super important. However, Yeshua doesn't point us back to Torah as the pinnacle expression of our faith. He points us into a life that neither the prophets nor the angels fully understood. 1 Peter 1. Torah observance, when out of sync, can become a diversion for the fullness of life we are supposed to live in the Ruach with our eyes on Yeshua. It becomes, in my mind, a replacement for true spirituality when we think when we lack the ability or don't want to be a congregation here at Tree of Life in which all come in with spiritual fruit and spiritual gifts to share. That's the goal of a Messianic Jewish congregation. It's not about the 60% non-Jews that come in and are praying better than the Jewish people and are looking like Jews or maybe have gone through a circumstance. You've missed the boat, folks, if that's your aim. you'd stand with me today, my friends, this is the pitfall I've seen so many times in congregations and people who emphasize Torah observance. It can never be the thrust of our spirituality. At the same time, there are many here more Torah observant than I, and at the same time, they don't lack moving in the anointing of the Spirit. But those who try to balance those two rightly often don't balance them equally. That is, they understand that the life of Yeshua in our lives, in his footsteps, is chiefly defined by the Spirit and not the written Torah. But the Torah observance is supposed to be a sign that points to Yeshua and not an end in and of itself. And so for those two main reasons, my friends, I try just to avoid the term Torah observance altogether. Food for thought. As Moses told Aaron how to bless the sons and daughters of Israel, we do this likewise at each service. Receive it from the Lord. It's his blessing. Vyasem lecha shalom. May the Lord bless you and keep you today. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May Adonai lift up his countenance over you and grant you shalom. In the name of the Sar Shalom, the Prince of all peace, Yeshua our Master, and all of us who are with him said, Amen. Be amen. Shabbat shalom, everybody. And a Shavuot to you all. Thanks for joining us this week. Make sure to visit our website, treeoflifeca.org, and be sure to subscribe to the show in iTunes, Google, Spotify, or via RSS, so you'll never miss a show. While you're at it, if you've found value in this show, we'd appreciate a ratings on iTunes, or simply tell a friend about the show. That would help us out too. If you like this show, you might want to check out our Facebook page, Tree of Life Messianic Jewish Congregation, to see more content, including our weekly live stream. Be sure to tune in for our next episode as we continue to explore our Jewish roots through Scripture. <laughs>